And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and Jephthah, and of David, and Samuel, and also Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in the fight, turned to the flight of armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Uh, this morning we'll be preaching on verse 32, and the title of the message will be, Yes, These Guys. You ever heard the phrase, uh, never meet your heroes? Because you'll always be disappointed. Um, oftentimes people look up to men and women and idolize them and think they're head and shoulders above all the rest. That they're, they're just better than anybody that ever was. And then they meet them and find out that they're just people like everybody else. Some people will idolize politicians and, and lift them up and, and listen to them talk about faith and family and then find out that they're just foul-mouthed adulterers and, and drunkards who put on a, a good show of faith and family. Or some people idolize actors and they see their personification maybe of, of manliness and, and strength in TV and then you find out in real life they're effeminate cowards. You're so disappointed. Sports heroes who are strong and fast and, and idolize them and lift them up. But then you find out they're morally weak. Whenever I was a kid, there was a particular football player who I just thought was, was the greatest thing that ever was, whoever was. And then you know, find out that he was morally just a really, really bad guy. And I thought, oh, I wish I hadn't known that. Maybe there's preachers who, who you read of and read their sermons from ages gone by and you find out in a biography that they just weren't that great of a person. Maybe they were lazy or unfriendly. Or you meet them in person or meet through their biography and you're kind of disappointed they're not what you thought they were. Never meet your heroes, they say. You'll always be disappointed. Well, I heard one preacher say, meet your heroes. Get disappointed and learn that they're just men and stop idolizing them. Well, that's the way the Bible treats the men and women in the scriptures. We don't, we're, they're not there for us to idolize. They're not there to lift up and say, well, these men were head and shoulders above everyone else. There was something that they had that nobody else had. Oftentimes, we find out that, that they had lots of problems. Many times, especially in the Old Testament, we see them, as the saying goes, warts and all. That's the way the Bible treats the men in this chapter. If this is, as many call this chapter, the heroes of faith, then we meet our heroes, and if you lift them up as heroes, you'll be disappointed. But if we look at these people as examples of faith, 
examples of men and women who did great things because they believed in the promises of God and see their faith as examples to trust in God, then we'll see God's grace and we'll see this as a chapter of examples of faith and lift up the God they have faith in and not the men and the women who had faith. So it's just a slight difference, a way of thinking about that, but the, the difference puts the stress on who they had faith in, not the people. And I titled the message, Yes, These Guys, because you read this, and if you know the, your scriptures, then you know that these guys did some good things, but they also got some things that you just kind of shake your head at. So what do you think about when you think of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah? Like if you, for example, if you were going to make a list of all the best characters in the Old Testament to illustrate faith, would you have these people on your list? It's an interesting group. All these men were, were judges in Israel. All You find them all in the book of Judges. The time after Joshua, when the people of God, Israel, had finally come into the land, Moses had brought them to the border. Joshua took them in, took the land over. But it was the time before the kings. So it was a time when they didn't have a king. They had just um, recently taken over the land, and they were supposed to, to have God as their king. They were supposed to follow the, the ways of God. Well, the book of Israel, or the book of Judges, Israel kept making the same blunder over and over again. They didn't obey God at the start, and they didn't defeat all their enemies like he told them to. God said, go in and clear out the land, and they didn't. They left people behind, and those enemies, for the rest of the time, would be a thorn in their side. Over and over again, Israel would disobey God. They would fall from the worship of the one true and living God and go into idolatry. And so the Lord would allow these enemies to oppress them. Whether it be the Canaanites or the Midianites or the Philistines, they would rise up and oppress and afflict and persecute Israel. And Israel would come to their senses. And they would cry out to God, God, save us. Save us from our iniquity. Save us from our trials. And then the Lord would send a judge. And the judge would come um, come in the spirit and the power of God, rescue them, and lead them during their life. The people would rejoice, and for a time they would follow after God under the leadership of the judge. The judge would die. And in the process of time, they'd forget what God told them to do. They'd forget God's mercies, and they'd go back and start worshiping the gods of the land and the cycle would repeat itself all over again. It was a different time, to be sure. A time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. There was no centralized government. There was no police force. There was no army. Uh, they, they were to follow the law of God. They were to treat God as king. They, they had their uh, worship and their, their religious uh, ceremonies that they were to do. But they would not live under the law of God. 
The book is very clear on the sinfulness and the weakness of the people of God. And when Judges gets dark, it gets really, really dark. The book shows us some great, some of the great stories and the great acts of faith that are in the scripture. But it also shows us that these judges were not perfect saviors or deliverers. It shows us the dark side of humanity. It shows in vivid fashion uh, their failures and, and the wickedness of, of the people. So it's interesting that the author of Hebrews here takes these four men and makes them um, illustrations in this cloud of witnesses to witness of the, the faithfulness of God. So the first one on the list here is Gideon. So let's, let's think about first just remind ourselves of the story of, of these four men. And then we'll circle back around. So Gideon was a judge in Israel. He was called to deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites for seven years. So um, this is in, uh, in Judges 6. We'll read a few verses, but... Um, You want to just go ahead and turn there. Because of the terror of the Midianites, Israel lived in caves and strongholds and in the mountains. They had to run for their lives and hide out um, from the terror of these Midianites. Israel would plant their crops. And the Midianites and the Amalekites would come in like locusts and just rob them and leave everything bare. They'd plant their wheat. The Midian, they would work the land. They would take care of their wheat, do all those things. Time for harvest. The Midianites would just come in and rob them, take it all. They'd work their vineyards. And when it was time to, to get the grapes, here they would come just like insects and just devour it. And it would leave nothing left. They were afraid. They ran and hid. They lived in the caves, like I said, and, and tried to hide from them. In, in verse number 8 of Judges 6, it said that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, thus, because they cried out, they said, God, help us. The Midianites are, are, are plaguing us. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth from the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. The angel of the Lord then appeared to Gideon. So they cried out and said, God, save us. And God told them through the mouth of the prophet, you're in this position because you didn't obey us, or obey me. I told you to keep my law where this would happen, and you didn't keep my law, and it happened. And the prophet just left it there. Well, then the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. Supposed to thresh wheat on the top of the hill, and that way the wind comes through and blows off the top of the hill. So 
My house would not be a very good place to thresh wheat because we're down in between two hills. You go up on the top of the hill, the wind blows, you throw that wheat up, blows the chaff away. But, but Gideon was in a wine press because he's trying to hide from the Midianites. These people would just terrorize anybody that, that had anything and rob them. Well, the angel came and told Gideon that he was going to be a leader and deliver Israel from the Midianites. Gideon said, well, I'm the youngest man of a poor family. How, how do you want me to do this? The Lord said, surely I will be with thee and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Well, Gideon heard the angel of the Lord and said, I don't think I can do that. And he said, no, you're going to. This is going to happen. Well, the Lord gave Gideon a sign and that faith strengthened him to believe. If you look down at verse number 21, it says, Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh. This is the sign that he gave him. And the unleavened cakes, and it rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that this was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. So Gideon built an altar and later received instruction that he was to go to the grove and the altar of Baal that his father had made and destroy it. His father was a leader in idolatry, had an altar, had a grove, he said, I want you to go in there and destroy it. Well, Gideon was afraid of the people because he knew what would happen if he went in and destroyed it. So he snuck in in the middle of the night. He cut down the grove. He, just, he broke down the altar. And when the people woke up, Gideon was right to be afraid because they saw the altar was gone. They were furious. And they were just, well, let's put him to death. Gideon destroyed our altar. He, he destroyed our temple or our place of worship. He destroyed our God. Let's get him. Well, Gideon's dad says, well, look, are you going to fight Baal's battles? Are you going to plead for him? If he's God, then let him deal with my son. Let him deal with Gideon, and you, won't, you don't have to. Because if, if this God can't deal with somebody who destroys his altars and destroys his, his place of worship, then he's not much of a God anyway. While all this was going on, the Midianites were coming. And so Gideon was still unsure if he should fight, even though the, Lord, the, the angel of the Lord has come and spoke to him, even though he's given him the sign, even though Gideon destroyed the altar like he said, and it kind of turns the hearts of the people, even though he blows the trumpet and, and summons people, um, he's still unsure of whether or not... Um, he should go forth to battle. So he asked for another sign. He put a fleece on the threshing floor and he said, Lord, if there's dew on the fleece, but the ground is dry in the morning, then I'll know you want me to do it. Well, he wakes up and there's enough water in the fleece. He could wring out and fill up a bowl. Well, he said, well, give me one more sign. Let's do it the opposite way. Give me the same sign in reverse. So let's let this be dry and then all the earth be wet. And God showed him yet again in a sign, yet another sign to go to war. So Gideon has the word of God. The angel of the Lord came and appeared to him, which was a sign, the sign of the, of the, 
the offering being burnt up, the living cakes, the sign of the dream to go destroy the altar, and that God was with him there. The, the Lord came and spoke to him again. Two signs with the fleece. And so now he says, okay, I believe. Well, Gideon had blown the trumpet, and the men came to war, and he had an army of about 32,000 soldiers. The Lord told him that was too many. So you got too many people because if you go and fight, then you will think that you won the battle, and Israel will think that they won. So let's reduce the, the size of the army. Gideon told the soldiers to go to some water and get, in, get something to drink, and they did. And as they drank, when they were finished, Gideon separated them. He says, all right, I want everybody who kneeled down and drank straight from the water to go over here. And I want everybody who scooped water out of their hand and lapped it like a dog, you go over here. And there was 300 men that lapped it like a dog. I always try to think of how I would have done it, but if you know the story, you know you, you know which one which side you're going to be on, and you can't hardly uh, you can't hardly think which side you'd be on. But but uh, that's what happened. So the, the people that scooped it up and laughed it like a dog out of their hand, three hundred people. He says, "All right, you thirty-two thousand or thirty-one thousand men, you go home. The Lord is going to use three hundred men against the Midianites." Judges 7, 12 describes it like this. This is the army, not the nation, but the army. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east, this is the army that joined together in battle, lay us long in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand by the sea side. This great multitude, if you got up and spied it out and you looked, they're just everywhere. Thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers and animals and, 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 and camels and without number. And Gideon has an army of 300 people. Well, Gideon goes in the middle in the night and divides the troops up into a separate, um, or divides the army up into different troops. You guys go over here, and you guys go over here and take lamps with you. And when I give the word, I want you to shout the sword of the Lord and Gideon and smash the lamps down. Well, they did that. They shouted, they smashed, they, they, um, they surrounded like Gideon had said. Well, when this happened, they see the, the lamps the fire smashed. They hear people shouting from all different directions. There was confusion everywhere. The enemies of God were shocked and startled and knew they were under attack. And so in a panic, they grab their swords and they go to war and they bump into somebody and they, they, they start fighting. In the confusion, they didn't realize they were fighting each other. The Lord in this, um, in this battle plan that he gave to Gideon had confused the enemy so much that they were defeating themselves. And those who weren't fighting each other retreated, and they all retreated, and there was a great slaughter. Israel won the day, and, and Gideon uh, Gideon had won a great victory. 
and delivered Israel from the hand of these, these evil Midianites. And it became a famous story. You can read it in 1 Samuel. It's mentioned there in chapter 12, Psalm 83, Isaiah 9, and Isaiah 10. All talk about this great deliverance that was wrought here in Gideon's day. Now, after that, Gideon's life kind of ends on a, a downward note. Israel turns to idolatry just as soon as he was dead. And what he thought was, was leading them in the right way um, ended up leading them into idolatry. The next person we have on the list is Barak. Um, because of Israel's sins, again, another cycle, because of Israel's sins, the Lord sends Jabin, the Canaanite king, to chasten them. In this situation, we go backwards in time on this one, Judges chapter number 4. Verse number three, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. So a long time they were under oppression. And Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the Mount of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinam, out of Kadesh Nephali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw towards Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee the river of Kishon Caesarea, and the captain of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver them into thy hand. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go, but if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee. Notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. The Lord shall sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Well, they went to war. And Jabin was destroyed in the plain of Jezreel. Chapter 5, you can read the song that Deborah and Barak sang over the victory that the Lord had gave them. Barak, Barak led the army and won the victory. Verse 12 of chapter 5, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake under a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive. But he was a man who led Israel to a great victory. He delivered them from a 20-year bondage and set the captives free. Then we got Samson. Even pe people who are not really familiar with the Bible know about Samson. The angel of the Lord told his parents that he'd be a Nazarite, that he wasn't supposed to cut his hair, um, and not from his birth. And Samson married a Philistine woman. When he grew up, and that didn't please mom and dad too much, but he married this Philistine woman, and the marriage started out rocky because at the feast right after the marriage, Samson had a game that he had he'd play, and he'd give him a riddle. 
And he said, the winner get 30 changes of garments. Well, the Philistines got Samson's um, wife to cheat. And she told them the answer to the riddle. And they beat Samson. Well, Samson now owes him 30 changes of garments. And he gets angry. And he goes and slaughters 30 Philistines and, and takes their garments. And he comes and he pays the debt with the clothes of the Philistines. And he goes home. Samson's had enough of this, and he goes back to his dad's house. Well, by and by, Samson cools down a little bit and comes back to get his wife. And so, well, we thought you were gone never coming back, so she married somebody else. Well, that didn't go over too well with Samson. And Samson goes and catches 300 foxes. And he ties firebrands to their tails and he lets them loose in the fields and it destroys all their crops. Those foxes run wild because it's got the, the, the firebrands attached to their tails and they're running this way and that, just setting the, the fields on fire. Well, that didn't go over too well with the Philistines and they took revenge. And they took Samson's wife and his father-in-law and burned them to death. Well, the Bible says that at that point, Samson went and smote him hip and thigh. Samson went to war against the Philistines and destroyed a great number of them. Well, Israel got mad at Samson. All oh, you're doing is starting trouble. Now the Philistines are really going to be mad. You shouldn't have married that girl to start with. And then you went and made it matters worse. You should have just left them alone. Now we're going to tie you up and we're going to deliver you to the Philistines. And he says, okay, as long as you don't hurt me, as long as you don't fight me, I'll go along with it. So they tied him up, and they took him to the Philistines. And so whenever they delivered him, the Philistines were happy. They had their man. Samson broke those ropes like they were threads. Saw a jawbone of a donkey laying there, and he picks it up and single-handedly killed a thousand Philistines. Think about what a battle that was. Think about how hard you'd have to swing that thing to, to kill somebody. And that's just, even if he just swung it one time per enemy, that's a thousand times. Go out and take an axe and swing it a thousand times. Take a baseball bat and go to a batting cage and take a thousand swings. That'd wear you out, wouldn't it? Now think about fighting for your life with in, a, in an army. He killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of that donkey. Samson went on to judge Israel for 20 years. And we know how his life ended. He went after Delilah, another woman he shouldn't have been with. She deceived him, found out the source of his strength. They cut his hair off. He lost his power. They made a mockery out of him. They put him in the temple and in his last act, he prayed to the Lord to give him strength one more time. He pulls the pillars down. The temple comes down. And he killed more people in his last act, more Philistines in his last act than he did his whole career. And then we got Jephthah. Jephthah was a judge. Um, he delivered Israel from the Ammonites. And he judged Israel for six years. Um, I like Smith's Dictionary, and this might be a good, I'll, I'm going to share it because it'll be good for us. He was a wild, daring mountaineer. Uh, he was a warrior Elijah. 
So that's how he described him, a mountaineer. And the reason why was because um, Jephthah, his dad was Gilead, but his mother was a harlot. So Jephthah had a bunch of half-brothers, and they said, we don't want to share our inheritance with the illegitimate son of a prostitute. You're... Your mom's not our mom. We don't want you around here. We want you to leave. So they kicked him out of the family. And, and so he left, and he just starts roaming the mountains. And while he's roaming the mountains, he's got a gang of lawless men. Jephthah wasn't somebody you wanted to mess around with. So here he is. He's got a gang of mountaineers who just go and, and, and do what they Well, the Bible says they were lawless, so... We can just imagine what they were into. He has no family. His family disowned him. His people disowned him. And so he just wanders about in this gang. Well, the Ammonites came and was causing them problems. And guess what happens? They go and find Jephthah. And they say, come back and, and, and lead us. Come back and help us. We know what your gang is like. You, you're, a, you're a bad guy in the, in the gang sense. You know, you, you're a tough man. We know what you do out here in these mountains. And we know how you live. And we know how your men live. Come back and help us. And he says, oh, I see. When everything was fine and you was worried about your inheritance, I wasn't good enough to be around you. You hated me when I lived there with you. But now that you're in trouble... You want me to come back and save you. That's how it is, huh? You need something from me, and now you want me to come back. And so, well, we're in lots of trouble. We need your help. Come and, come and help us. And he says, all right, well, if I come back, then I'm going to be your leader. And they said that was fine with them, so he comes back. Well, Jephthah comes back and sends representatives back to the Ammonites. And he's going to try um, to end this through diplomacy. <coughs> so they thought that he was going to come in with his wild men and just wreak havoc, but no, Jephthah goes and says, let's, let's end this peaceably. So he sends representatives, but the Ammonites took the position that Israel stole the land. They said, you were in Egypt as slaves, and you come in here, and you just start, uh, you come into the Canaan land, and you just start taking people's land over. You guys are the outlaws. We were here first. And Jephthah recalled the story of what really happened. He says, no, we came to the land and the people of the land met us with um, antagonism. We asked for help and you wouldn't help. And we asked for aid and no one would aid us. And it was Jehovah that gave us this land. We didn't come in and take it. It was given to us by the almighty God. And if your gods had given you a land, you'd make the same case. Jehovah gave us this land, and it's ours. And he recalled the promises of God. He recalled how God had delivered the, 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 the land to the people. He went back to the book and said, this is what really happened. This is our land. Well, there was no peace through negotiations. And the only thing left was for Jephthah to go and defeat the enemies, and he did, and he humiliated them. He destroyed the Ammonites. He judged Israel. He won a great victory. 
But it's hard not to think of Jephthah and not to think of that vow he made. No matter what you believe that that vow is, it's hard to think of him and not think about what happened. Because he made, let's look in uh, Judges 11. Because before he went to battle, so after the negotiations were over, after he knew that he was going to have to go to war, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead, and Manasseh and passed over Mitzvah of Gilead. From Mitzvah of Gilead, he passed over the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be put, or shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah passed over the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And they were subdued, and it says the very great slaughter in the next verse. Well, he comes back, and you know the story. What was the first thing that came out of the door? It was his daughter. That was, a, that was a pretty bad blunder. And it's hard not to think of that because it's such a, it's such a wild, wild history. You think, why did he do that? Why, why did he not go to the Lord in repentance and so forth? But for that matter, it's hard to think of Samson without Delilah, isn't it? Or it's hard to think of Barak without thinking that he was too afraid to go to war without Deborah. Or it's hard to think about Gideon without him hiding in the threshing floor and needing all those signs just to go and, and do what God says. It's hard to think of these guys without that baggage that comes along with it. But the Lord, in Hebrews 11, I don't think wants us to think in those terms of their failures because that's, that's not what the point of it was. We're supposed to look at what they did by faith. They are being shown to us as examples, as, um, as witnesses. And that's what it says in the next chapter. This great cloud of witnesses. People who can stand up and point to the faithfulness of God and tell us to lay aside every weight and run the race that is before us. I don't believe we're supposed to look at Gideon and Judge and Barak and Samson and Jephthah in this case and judge them. I believe we're supposed to look at their faith. He's being shown as an example of faith, not of a foolish vow. Gideon is shown as an example of one who trusted in the Lord when called and went to war, not a, not a, a coward who was um, afraid to go. Samson, we're to look to as a judge who delivered Israel and fought great wars for the people of God, not as one who um, fell in with the, the Philistine women. We're to look at Barak as one who led the people into battle and led captivity captive, not one who wouldn't go unless Deborah went with him. These men were sinners saved by grace who lived imperfect lives trusting in a perfect God. They believed God's promises and lived accordingly. 
Certainly we can, and the New Testament tells us that we must look to them and their failures so we don't make the same mistakes. You have to look at Samson and say, look what happens when you don't listen to God and, and go and, and after women who don't know the Lord. Look what can happen. We're supposed to look at Gideon, and, say, and we can look at him and say, here's somebody that the Lord told him to do something over and over again, and he just wouldn't do it unless he saw a sign. And Jesus said something about people who wouldn't do things unless they saw a sign. We look at Barak and say, why didn't he just go into battle? Why did he have to have a, um, a woman go with him? Because he was too afraid. And we can look at that and we can say, Barak should have done what he was called to do and not been so timid and not, not do it and let somebody went and held his hand while he did it. Right? We, can, we, can learn these issues. we can learn from these things, as the New Testament tells us to. But in this instance, we're not to look at those failures. Um, we're, we're, to, we're, we're to look at what they did by faith. And see, this goes against the idea that we're saved and we get this second blessing and live in victory. It's funny because the people who teach that theology use Joshua as the example that you go into the promised land and you live by victory. You know, the, the first blessing of salvation is is whenever you come out of Egypt, and then the second blessing is when you get to the victory of the promised land. But the funny thing about that is uh, they stop there in Judges, or Joshua. They don't go into Judges, where, where this quote-unquote victory is the darkest chapter in Israel's history, practically, and many times. We are saved, and we are justified, and God sanctifies us. But as long as we live in this flesh, we're going to sin and we're going to fail and we're going to do things imperfectly. I'm sure there's people that find it hard not to think of me without thinking about some of the stupid things I've done or said. But is that who I am? Well, maybe to them that's who they look at me, but is that who I am? Does that sin define me or am I a sinner saved by grace? And that's what defines me. These men believed in God, trusted his promises, and despite their sinfulness, they trusted God, they had faith, and they lived their lives accordingly. Perfectly, no. But we're going to meet our heroes. We're going to see him warts and all. We're going to see that these men were not perfect. These men were not the saviors of Israel. They were judges, but they were not the saviors. They were not the deliverers. As good as Samson was, he couldn't be the perfect deliverer. And as good as Gideon was, he wasn't a perfect savior. And as good as Barak was, and as, and as uh, manly and tough as Jephthah was, they were not the men that would bring lasting peace to Israel. They were failures. But they, they trusted in their God. The interesting thing here is that all of the men, Jephthah is the one that, gets the hardest rap. But he might have the greatest example of faith in the whole situation. Gideon spoke to an angel of the Lord and was given multiple signs. Barak had the prophetess's word, so he had the word of God that he was going to be victorious. He just didn't believe um, and needed uh, help in his faith. Samson, of course, the promise was given to his parents that he would, uh, what he would do. 
But Jephthah had no word from God, specific word of God, to tell him to do this. There was no promise that he would be successful. There was no prophet to, to urge him along. The people of God had forsaken him and were just using him. What did Jephthah have? He had the historical record of God's promise and his provision. And Jephthah knew what God had promised Israel, knew why they were in the land, knew that it was because of the covenant that God had made with his people that they were there in the first place. And he trusted God's promise. He didn't need a sign. He didn't need a prophet to come and tell him. He knew that this was God's, it was the land of Israel because God gave it to him. And whenever the people of God failed him, and whenever it looked like God had forsaken them, when he was forced to go out and live like a wild man in the mountains because the people of the land had kicked him out and they had no mercy and no grace on him, he could have easily thumbed his nose at him and said, what do I have to do with you, you bunch of hypocrites? But what did he do? He thought of the promises of God and the covenant of Jehovah towards his people. And he rested in those promises and he went to war by faith. The promise that was already given was enough. So yes, did he mess up? Did he fail with that vow? Yes, he did. But what does the author of Hebrews want us to do? Here was a man who had the promises of God, who didn't need a sign, who didn't need a prophet to come and tell him exactly what to do, but he believed in the promises of God and said, I'm going to go and do what is right according to the scriptures. I believe what God said is true. There's nothing in my life that would show that this is going to be successful. There's nothing that I can see in the flesh that says that, that this is the right way to go, but I believe God and I believe his word. You have that kind of faith this morning. It's easy to, to find that fault and be judgmental, but do we have that faith of Jephthah? Do we have the faith of Gideon who believes the word of God and goes and, and does what we're called? Do we have the faith of Barak to stand against uh, wickedness despite the opposition and go forth? Do we have the faith of Samson to trust in the Lord and to go forward and to, to rest in his strength? No, it's not a hall of faith, but a record of witnesses, reliable witnesses, reliable testimony of God's saving grace and men and women who trusted God and followed him by faith. We can look to these men and women in our own lives when things get shaky, when things get rocky, which if you remember chapter number 10, that's what this is all about. We're not those who fall away uh, back into perdition, but them that believe to the saving of the soul. And when life gets rocky and things start coming undone and it looks like it's all falling apart, we can go back and say, you know what? Gideon. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, all these people believed God and they trusted God and they lived by faith. Despite the circumstances, they lived by faith and God kept his word. God kept his promises, not because they were good, not because they were perfect, 
Not because they did everything right, but because God is faithful. Despite their sin, despite their failures, God is faithful. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. And they trusted in their God. Whenever we fail, we can look to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I know that Jesus keeps his promises. And so, leading into chapter 12, that's what we're called to do. We have these cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us run the race that is beset before us, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We look to Jesus. We don't look to Gideon. We don't look to Jephthah. We don't look to Barak. We don't look to Samson. We look to Jesus. And what do these men say? I'm not a perfect judge, but Jesus is. I'm not a perfect deliverer, but look to him who is a perfect deliverer. I'm not the author of your faith, but look to the one who is. These men are failures, so we know that they're not saviors. The Lord didn't have angels to come and be your pastor because you might look to the angel to be your shepherd. But the Lord has fallible men to be pastors. So you can look at me and you can say, well, he's not going to save me. He can't even save himself. But there is a pastor, there is a shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him. Look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Trust in him. Hear what he says. Believe him and follow him. Rest in Christ, for he's our deliverer. He is the great judge who will deliver us fully and finally forever.